Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? Well, guys, I, uh, I owned and operated a food manufacturing company for 32 years, and one of the hardest parts of managing people in manufacturing was getting them to follow safety standards. And we had extensive training. I mean, tons of it, tons of training, policies, procedures, videos, managers. I mean, you can't imagine every possible way you could teach and train and manage safety. We had it, and we executed it. But for some reason, men in particular were the ones who hated to follow those rules. You guys aren't like that. None of you guys. I'm absolutely certain of that. I remember an incident on a large shifter that we had with a dust collector above it. On that piece of equipment, it was imperative that you would attach a grounding strap during startup of that equipment when you rebuilt it. We handled food powders, food ingredients, things like grain dust. You hear about grain dust explosions, imperial sugar, plant blew up, killed six men, right? These dusts were explosive, and so grounding was important. I came in one morning, there was a manager standing in my office, he's breathless, and he's looking at me, he said, we had a near miss. An employee was bending down to pick up a bag, he heard a loud explosion, a fireball blew over his back, and it shot across him, and as he stood up and looked, he could see the fire engulfed in this dust collector, and fortunately, as soon as that happened, a splinter head opened up and put the fire out. The guy did not get burned at all, but he was scared out of his wits. Under investigation, we found out he had not connected the grounding strap that day. And when I asked him, why did you not connecting the grounding strap? He said, well, I knew the policy. I just didn't follow it. This is how many Christians feel about the Bible. We know what we should do. We know we should read it every single day. We just don't do it. And then we sit afraid and frazzled as we wonder how our anger, lust, Laziness, selfishness, and greed cause so many fires in our life. Why is my marriage so bad? How did I lose my job? Why am I so anxious about money all the time? Why is my desire for sex controlling all my thoughts? You get the point, don't you? I'm not saying reading the Bible fixes everything or prevents everything, but what I am saying, reading the Bible every day dramatically reduces the chances of you creating self-inflicted wounds. So how much damage are you doing because you aren't reading and following God's safety manual every day? This year, we're going to look closely at our spiritual foundations by studying the book of Genesis. Tonight, I'm going to share three things with you. Why do we study the Bible, the importance of Genesis, and two quick ideas from Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. My aim is that in 20 minutes from now, you're going to feel compelled to make a strong commitment to study the Bible every single day over the next eight weeks. Join me as we pray to get ready. Heavenly Father, thank you for these dear precious men and this time we have with you. Lord, I'm really asking for your help right now. Uh, Take away um, my anxiety, my fear, my concerns about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it. Lord, help me not use the wrong words and help me not get in the way of you. Holy Spirit, help these guys hear you speak no matter what I say. And Lord, lastly, I pray that these guys will each turn off their watch or their cell phone for 20 minutes and let you have time with them. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. 
So this year, guys, I'm going to present Genesis from three standpoints. And so I want to tell you this up front so you're not thinking, boy, that seems like it's kind of lopsided and you're not really presenting the whole case and you're only sharing one idea. Uh, I, I am going to share a lopsided view of Genesis. And it's coming from this perspective. God created all things, number one. Creation occurred in six literal days, and man is 6,000 years old, and he did not evolve. So I'm going to share from that bias. And I know you're all thinking, wait a minute, what about evolution? And why aren't you going to teach on that? And boy, there's a whole bunch on that, and it knits evolution in the Bible together. And that's right. And most of you know a lot about that. What most of us don't hear about is this. This side of the story is getting left out of the schools and out of the churches and out of a lot of things. And I've grown up being taught to teach the literal word of God and to stay as close to the words in the Bible as I possibly can so that I don't alter what God had intended to say. And so I'm going to do that at the risk of losing some of you, at the risk of some of you being frustrated that I'm not talking about it from a more scientific standpoint and presenting the science. But I'm also taking that risk because I really do believe you've heard that already and you don't need me to teach that. And honestly, I don't believe it. This is what I believe. I believe in a literal Bible, and I believe this stuff, so I'm going to teach it from that standpoint. So I hope you can respect that bias. What I hope you won't do is feel like there's a, this is a place where we got to be combative with each other. What I hope you will do is do a lot of reading outside of the Bible and study and read lots of different viewpoints on these topics. These topics are some of the most controversial topics. You saw Pastor Mark get up and say something like, wow. I can't believe Bill's going to teach this this year, right? He's like, man, are you going to step in some landmines? You know, and it's like, yeah, I know, I know, because these are very controversial topics. But you guys, you know what's different about us as Christian men is we can disagree in an agreeable way. We can. It's possible. And we can have civil disagreement. And this has been going on for centuries. Guys don't agree on these texts. They just don't. And it's okay. It's okay. I'm not going to disrespect you if you won't disrespect me and honor each other, and, but let's not not dig in. I'm challenging you now. Dig in. Read. Read as much as you can and study this eight weeks. Don't back off. Back in. Dive in hard. The theory of evolution was started by Darwin in 1859, and by 1930, biologists already had started calling it fact. Evolution is not a fact. It's actually a theory. It still is a theory. We have all been taught that this is, evolution is an act of fact, and that is more of an indoctrination than a truth. And I just want you to know that, right? So it's a theory still. It has never been proven to be a fact. It's got a lot of broken ends to it, one of which is there's no fossil chain, none at all. Nobody's found a fossil chain of any kind to show the progression of, of a molecule to a man. It just hasn't happened. And so we're all waiting for that. And when that happens, maybe you'll convince me of its truth. But until then, it's still a theory. So what you really are going to hear, though, is Genesis is taught as the truth, but you're going to hear it from me, that Genesis is the way it is written, is God's word, and it's true, and you can count on it, and you can believe in it. And I do believe the Bible is true just the way it's written. I believe that with all my heart. It's just the way God wrote it, and you don't need me to edit it or monitor it or change it in any way, and I don't need to make it fit to today's science because today's science won't be today's science. It'll be different tomorrow. 
but I can stand on the Word of God the way it's written. So that's what I'm going to present to you. Up on the slide are my reference materials, and so these are the things I've used uh, to date to think and study on this. This is the third time I'll be uh, teaching the book of Genesis to a group of men, um, but these are the things I've used. We can send this to you if you'd like. Um, I, I hope you notice that one of these is called the Rational Bible. It's by Dennis Prager. Dennis is, a, uh, is not a Christian. He's a Jewish scholar. And so I do that every year. I try to find uh, content from a Jewish scholar, and I think Dennis does a great job of talking through this. Um, all of these other uh, texts are things I've read and studied and uh, will work from as we work through this. So, uh, so I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy this study, and I hope you'll dig into these things and then bring your own. I've already had guys sending me things uh, about what other people believe, and I really do like it. So don't feel bad if you disagree and you want to send me something to say, I totally disagree with you, and I'll be like, great, thank you. Send it to me, and I'll read it. And I give you my word, I'll read it, all right? So I may not call you back and agree with you, but I'll certainly read it, all right? So... So thank you guys. Let me start with two reasons why we study the Bible. The first reason we study the Bible is because it's true. Jesus said if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. Here's some reasons we believe the Bible's true. There are 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. They were written by 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years. And the greatest part about that is they tell the same story. The only way that could be true is if the same Holy Spirit spoke to all those same people to present one common message. That internal consistency of the Bible is the most remarkable thing you'll ever see in any ancient manuscript. There's nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in the world. If you say, well, the Quran is that. The Quran was given by one man, Muhammad, and he spoke it to people over a period of time, most of which is the Old Testament. So the Old Testament and what is written here was written by 40 people, God-inspired. Timothy said it was inspired by God, right? So this is a really powerful statement. The Bible's been transmitted accurately over thousands of years. How do we know that? One of the most stark uh, findings was discovered in 1947 and called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were dated about 250 BC. That's when they were written. They found a copy in there of the book of Isaiah, 100% intact, and 95% of the book of Isaiah was completely right. Only nine, nine words were wrong, and in those, it was only spelling errors, not content errors. Can you imagine how old that was? 250 BC, discovered in 1947, almost 2,000 years old, and it was dead accurate. Well, what they found with 25, over 25,000 Bible fragments is, that's in fact what they're finding in every book of the Bible. Wherever they found a fragment, no matter how old it was, it was almost an exact duplicate of the Bible we read today. That's how accurate it is. So the, you can't tell us it's not true because it wasn't transmitted accurately. In fact, in all of the books in ancient manuscripts, it's the most accurate and it sets a standard that nothing can come in close to in terms of accuracy of transmission. Archaeology is the same way. For centuries, archaeologists would claim, well, they didn't find this well or they don't know where that city is, so the Bible isn't true. Well, you know what's happening? Archaeologists are catching up with the Bible. Every time there's a new dig, they find something in, the, in these ancient eras, and it matches exactly what the Bible said. That's gone, been going on for centuries, you guys. And archaeology is a vast array of proof that the Bible is, in fact, actually true. And, and again, in Josh McDowell's book, the New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he's got dozens of examples of archaeology. It's absolutely fascinating if you want to read that. I love that part about it. Prophecies. There's hundreds of prophecies in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, pointing to things that are going to be happening in the future. 
Hundreds of those have come true, and specifically in Jesus Christ. But even outside of that, if you go read David, for example, David forecasted three different kingdoms would rise and fall. He described them in detail, and that's exactly what happened. How could such a document not be true if those things did, in fact, happen? Prophecy proves that the Bible is, in fact, accurate. The Bible is scientifically sound. Now, what the Bible isn't is a science textbook. I'm a chemical engineer. I took a lot of science. It's not that. I guarantee you. It does not look anything like my thermodynamics book. It doesn't look like my mass transfer book. It doesn't look like my physics book. Nothing. It doesn't resemble it at all. But it's scientifically accurate. It's sound. For example, Genesis reveals, as we're going to see in, in, in verse 2, that there's something that causes day and night. Well, what causes that? Well, the only way that happens is something has to rotate to cause there to be a difference, right? So something's rotating. For something to rotate, it's probably round. So the early per person, Moses, who wrote this is picturing a round spinning earth. Well, for years, they didn't know what it was. Aristotle in 400 BC proposed that it was possibly a round spinning earth. That's interesting because that was a thousand years after Moses wrote this. And that's how it goes. And if you go look now, there's people that actually believe there's a flat earth right now still, by the way. There are actually people proposing that there's a flat earth. There's not a flat earth. I'm just going to be really clear on this one. All right. There is not a flat earth. And there is lots of scientific data to prove that. The simplest one is to go look at the moon. And when you see the shadow on the moon, there's a curve to it. And that curve is always curved. If, if the flat earth were flat, on that moon would sometimes be lines, not curves. You will never see a line on the moon. You'll always see a curve. The earth is round. Trust me, it is, right? So... The Bible catches, uh, the science always catches up with the Bible. Science always catches up with the Bible. Just watch. You'll see over time, right? Years and years from now, you'll see all these things people are saying. Do you remember when they talked about the Big Bang? What did they say the first thing that was created? It was a photon. Well, what's photon? Light. What's the first verse, and, and, and what is the first thing God created? Light. He said, let there be light. And fancy enough, scientists say now the first thing that was created was light. They caught up with the Bible. That's how it often goes. Sci the Bible is scientifically sound. And one of the most important truths is stated in Romans 1 when God says, uh, I've revealed myself to everyone. I've revealed myself to everyone. Think about this. You think... Your mind thinks, oh, that's nature and all that I seek in nature. And it's not at all that he's talking about. Here's what he's talking about. I've given you the ability to think logically. I've given you the ability to be creative. I've given you the ability and the capacity to make and understand and enjoy music. I've given you the ability to trust in natural laws. And I've given you a conscience. Those are things that prove that there's a God. Because an evolutionist cannot prove any of those, not one single one of those. Because the evolutionist mind says all of that is, all of what's in our head is random combinations of things, random. So there's no possibility of any of those being capable. Only a God can do that. And the Bible describes all of those being something God has given us of so that we would know him and enjoy him. And that helps us know the truth of the Bible. And finally, I think one of the most compelling uh, uh, parts of the Bible that tells me it's true is that Jesus said this. He said, I came to fulfill every single word of the law. If Jesus didn't think it was true, why would he come to fulfill it? I think that's a powerful truth that says the Bible's true. 
Now, guys, why, would, why does any of this matter to you? Why does the truth of the Bible matter? Here's why. The media that we live in right now is pumping our heads full of bad information. And it started back when the devil started pumping bad information into Eve's ear. And that hasn't ended. He's still doing the same thing and just doing it in more creative ways. The Bible is the only source of truth you're going to find in your lifetime. You will never find another source of truth. It's the only source of truth, and it's the one you need. And because it's true, it should be something we use daily to correct the mountain of false ideas and lies that we keep hearing. That's why we need the truth of God's word, because your head's being pumped full of lies, and you need something every day to counter what's being put into your head. And you just can't even, you can't even fathom the volume of, of lies being poured into your head right now. You just can't even believe it until you start really, if you sat down tomorrow and, and started journaling everything you heard, you would be shocked how much of that is not true. It's massive amounts of not truths. And the only way you can counter it was God's word. Second, we study the Bible because our life depends on it. Our life depends on it. In Matthew 4, Jesus repeated what Moses said. Je Jesus said these words, and this is, he's, he's literally quoting Moses, the guy that wrote Genesis. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what we live on. That doesn't sound like a casual diet, does it? Every word God that he speaks is what we live on. That's how Jesus saw the words of God. Moses said it this way in Deuteronomy. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land and you are entering to possess but if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may have love of the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses and Jesus sound clearly like life depends on God's words, wouldn't you say? And then Moses goes on to tell us how to keep these commands. He says this, these words I'm commanding today are to be put upon your hearts and you shall teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit and when you shall teach them when you stand and when you go home and when you rise and when you walk and when you lie down and when you get up, constantly teaching them. Tie them as reminders on your hands, bind them to your foreheads, write them on the doorposts of your house and all over your gates. That's what you do with the word. That is a strong command to read, meditate, and teach God's word daily. That does not sound like once a week on Sunday. What words, video, or podcast gets most of your time each day? How much time do you actually commit to learning, teaching, and posting God's words in your world? Think about it. It's not nearly that, is it? I mean, when you measure it just against the standard Moses wrote, we don't even come close to that. Let me switch gears and briefly share just a couple thoughts about Genesis. Genesis is a Greek word meaning beginnings. In Genesis, we learn of the beginning of the world. 
the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, and the beginning of redemption. It's built around 10 divisions which show the family trees of all the Jewish people going back to Adam. Moses wrote this book for the Hebrew people as they're wandering through the desert for 40 years and they're trying to figure out what is going on, who are we, where are we going, what's happening with our lives. This is what he wrote Genesis for is to help them reframe and say, look at who you are. This is how God built you and this is where it's going. He explained foundational principles to the Jews at that time. He said this, God is creator, not forces of nature or random collisions of atoms. That there are six 24-hour days that God used to create everything, not 4.5 billion years. Man and woman were created. They did not evolve from animals or microbes. Marriage is to one man and to one woman, not to one man and one man or one woman to one woman. Man's biological, man's disobedience to God was a serious problem and it caused him to be born naturally good? No, not anymore. The first time, yes, but after Adam sins, he's no longer born good. He's born with a choice and he's got a sinful nature and that results in God's judgment, death, hard work, hard work. Yeah, you're wondering why I work so hard. It was part of the judgment. Painful childbirth, animosity between husbands and wives, sacrificing animals for atonement, the flood and confused languages are just a few of the many judgments. And then there's God's redemption. He tells them there's going to be death, but it's a way for God to redeem you. There's going to be a serpent's head that gets crushed. There's going to be a salvation of Noah to redeem mankind. And there's going to be a covenant with Abraham that's going to lead you to a savior named Jesus Christ. This is the path. So these are the truths that are buried in this book. Genesis written is the story as it is completely true, the words of God about how he created everything. And listen to how Jesus feels about these, record, these words recorded by Moses. In Matthew 5, he says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, and Genesis is part of the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, unto heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything, everything in that book is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus clearly believes the book of Genesis is true. And he quotes directly from Genesis when he's been challenged about divorce. We're going to see you. If we studied Matthew with us, in Matthew 19, Jesus is challenged about divorce. And they said, Moses gave us divorce. And he said, oh, that was because your hearts are hard. And then he says this, right out of Genesis 2. In the beginning, God made man and woman. And they will leave their father and mother and become one. Let no man tear apart what God has joined together. That's Jesus quoting Genesis. If Genesis wasn't true, why would he say that? Look at the truths embedded in that that are quoted right there that Moses wrote down from the beginning of time. Guys, my son Taylor has been great about keeping a journal for a full year. He did it all last year, and we sat around over the holidays and at the beginning of the year and looked at some of his posts. And it was surprisingly emotional to me seeing the pictures and the posts. I, I didn't realize that would have that effect on me. 
they brought me this deep sense of affection and love for my wife and my kids and my grandkids. I don't know if you've ever done that, but Taylor did such a remarkable job of writing things that happened every day and then putting pictures with them. And then we started reading some of those and it was very, very compelling. Genesis is that journal that God had Moses record so you would experience a fond and loving affection for your true family, the family of God. And I'm telling you guys, if you make just an eight-week commitment just to get started in Genesis, to put this study of Genesis first, it's going to make your experience with the Bible and your connection to deeper to Jesus so much deeper. You're going to feel an affection you haven't felt before. And I'm asking you, go along with me for the ride, at least for the first eight weeks. Try to embrace the words as God has written them. And I think you'll be surprised how much love and affection you'll feel if you let yourself immerse yourself in the story. This is God's journal. This is his way of saying, this is how our family started. I'm taking pictures of it for you. Don't you want to know? And he's asking you to come on the journey and not alter it. Don't change it. Don't try to match it with what some scientist has to say. Some atheist scientist is trying to convince you that's not the story. I'm asking you, go along with the ride just this time. Just try. We're going to give you two ways to do this study this year. One is the lesson. We've, we've cut the lesson in half. So instead of two pages to sides to the lesson, you're going to get one sheet of paper with eight questions on one side. A lot of you guys complained over the years it was too much work and we weren't getting through it in the groups. We heard you loud and clear. So we're going to extend the study longer. We're going to take more time to do it. And we're going to get less questions each week. So you'll be able to get through the lesson. But what I'm hoping you'll do is spend more time just enjoying these lessons. Enjoy the reading, digging and analyzing and thinking about why does light dilate? Why does light, why does time come to zero when you reach the speed of light? Does anyone care about that? I did. I spent days reading about it, and then Taylor spent weeks reading about it, and we have these amazing conversations about why time comes, goes to zero when you move at the speed of light. And when you think about this cool idea, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and you get so close to Jesus, time almost stops. Wow, that's so cool. That's the kind of thing you can think about when you think about God from this, from this book of Genesis. Enjoy the journey. I enjoy it. That's one way to do it. What I'd ask you not to do is pencil whip the lesson. Don't sit in your car out in the parking lot five minutes before the class and complete the questions. And you're like, who does that? I did that many, many times. I was in Bible study fellowship for 15 years. I would sit in the car and write my answers as fast as I could because I was in a hurry. I didn't get the work done. Please don't do that. You're really losing an opportunity to be with God. Spend at least 20 minutes every day on the lesson. It's broken up into four daily chunks. Try to do that. The second thing is we, we've got these deep water journals. And for you guys that say, well, that's only four days. I got three more. Use this. This deep water journal is a great tool. And you're like, oh, you're just pushing them because you're going to sell them and make money. Okay, you can look at it that way and be cynical. But that's not what we're doing. We don't make hardly any money on these things, guys. It costs us a fortune to buy these things. We're trying to recover some money. Yes, that's true. But what's in here is gold. We teach you a process for studying God's word. 
and we've taught two classes on this, and everybody that's taken it said it's been fantastic. I've been using this technique for 20 years. It's absolutely fabulous, and it will help you study by yourself or with a group of people, one or two verses every day. Do it for 30 days, 30 minutes for 30 days, and I promise you this will become a habit for you for a lifetime. So Deep Waters Journal. So those are the two tools you can use to study God's word and start to make it a habit. And to me, this habit is what Moses said. This is your life. So make it that important. Use these tools. Let me share two key ideas I find in Genesis 1, 1 through 2 as we round the corner here. The first two words of the, or the first words of the Bible are in the beginning God. In the beginning God. Moses wanted us to know there is one and only true God when he said that. He wanted his whole family to know that. There's only one God. Not many gods. One God. Hinduism is roughly 4,000 years old. Stay with the dates on me as we track through this. Archaeologists claim, they claim it's the oldest religion. We know from reading Genesis, it, it wasn't the oldest religion. Belief in one God was the oldest religion because it was the first one. But archaeologists will tell you at 4,000 years old, the first religion was Hinduism. It's polytheistic. They believe every person has numerous gods. I figured that out when I went to Nepal. I learned that there's 30 million people in Nepal and 32 million gods. And it feels that way when you're there. It really does. You don't feel any sense of God. You don't feel anything that's spiritual. It just feels really dark and really lost. At the time Moses wrote the book of Genesis, around 1450 BC, all known civilizations were actually worshiping multiple gods. The gods were in nature and in creation, and they were created from forces of nature. And this concept of a one God was a radical departure from the views of the people alive at that time. It was a radical departure. The earliest forms of writing are dated around 3400 BC. I find it interesting. If the earliest religion was 4000 BC and the earliest writing was around 3400 BC and we date man at, at 4000 BC, they all landed about the same time. Man, religion, and writing all seem to show up right around the same time. I find that really stark, uh, a very interesting thing. You're saying, well, how did I calculate the origin of man at 4,000 BC? We're going to take you through the genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, and we'll walk you through the math to get you to a 4,000-year-old man. So I think you'll, be, you'll appreciate our 4,000 BC. We're 6,000-year-old men right now, so, but 4,000 BC. And, it, and people will say, is it possible that Adam started writing stories? Because I'm referring to this as if Adam wrote these stories. I absolutely believe Adam wrote these stories. Adam was most likely the smartest human being ever created. Why? He was the first. And if you think about biology, his genome was the most complete genome created. It decayed from there. As it passed on from generation to generation, all of you good biologists know that. The genome, the DNA, there's decays, there's fragments, there's mutations. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. So the finest genetic material was in Adam. He was literally the smartest guy on the planet, no question about it. He contained all the DNA material that you and I have. That's how smart that dude was, right? He's that smart. So he contained all of that. So do you think he could write? Dude, are you kidding me? This guy's coming up with fire. He's coming up with wheels. He can write like he's got levers. This dude's coming out of his ears with inventions. Smartest guy on the planet, no question about it. So to think that he wrote, he couldn't write the history that he needed to write that was in Genesis, you're crazy, man. And to have it just pass up from 4,000 to 2000 BC, no problem. This is not hard at all, right? Uh, Abraham came about 2000 BC. So Adam's stories only had to pass through his lineage to 2000 BC. 
see that is not hard to do. We've seen that happen already with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we know this can happen. Why would Adam have to write? Adam had to share these stories because they were kicked out of the garden, he and his family. And the the first thing Adam sees when they get kicked out of the garden is his son Cain killing his other son Abel. So he's watching his murderous son behave in a way that's completely contrary to what God would have him be. And he's like, I better start writing stuff down. My kids are wild animals. This is not good. Isn't that how it goes with fathers? Isn't that how it goes, guys? You're watching your kids and like, these things are wild animals, right? Like, I got to start teaching about God. They're pagans. They don't know him. They're just completely out of control, right? I mean, they say no. They lie. They steal. They hit each other. You're like, who? What are these things, right? You know, everybody's like, these kids are so good. Like, they're not even close to good, right? And Cain and Abel proved that right out of the gate. So Adam's looking at this mess and going, I got to write this stuff down. They don't know. I was there. I saw what he did. I was part of creation. I watched the animals. I saw, I saw the whole thing. I named them. I was there. He told me. God showed me how he did it. I know what happened. So he wrote it down, and he passed it along. And so passing that record of truth was important to him so that his family would know God. So I think one key thought from this section I hope you will, will see is that we too must teach our children what we know about God. We have to pass it along, you guys. It's imperative that you pass it along. It's imperative that you know what it says. It's imperative that you believe there's one God and that you tell them there's one God. There's not multiple gods and that they didn't evolve from a, from a microbe in a bucket of water, that that's not who they are. They're purposed and God made them in his image and they're valuable and they have a purpose and he built all of the planet for them and everything around was made for them so that they would know him and they would build a relationship with him. Your kids need to know that. You need to write that down they need to hear that. It's important we do that. Why? Because our modern media and our schools are not teaching them that, and they're working diligently to do the exact opposite. And you watch it all day long. No matter what you turn on, everything is pulling your, your family and your kids away from God, not pointing it to it. And so we have to be diligent to do this. So how are you doing it? Making sure the people you love and know have the truth about God in their hearts and minds coming from you. Are you writing it down? Are you sharing it? Are you teaching it? And the last thing we see and I want to point out in Genesis tonight is in verse 2 where he says the Holy Spirit was hovering over a dark, formless place. When God wants to transform anything, he sends his Holy Spirit in first. It's like he's marine. In Exodus, when the first tabernacle was to be built, he sent the Holy Spirit to embody the two men he assigned to build it. When Saul was chosen as the first king, he sent his Holy Spirit to rest on him. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit landed on him to empower him for his miraculous three years. When Jesus told Nicodemus to be born again, he said, you have to be born of the Spirit. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to transform the disciples after his resurrection from fearful, lost cowards to courageous, bold evangelists. God sends his Holy Spirit to hover over the dark, hidden places of your life to transform your life. That's what he does, you guys. When you read God's word, the Holy Spirit moves into action. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Guys, as you read the Bible this year, the Holy Spirit will teach you the truth about the dark places the unseen sin, and the brokenness in your soul. And the closer you get to Jesus in this study, the more he will help you see those places, and they will be painful. But the transformation you will know then is underway. What dark places in your life need to be transformed by God's word and his Holy Spirit? Let me close with this thought. At that same manufacturing plant I was talking about that we started here in Indianapolis, we hired a young lady in 2014 
She had just been released from a home for recovering heroin addicts and needed a job. She told her story to me as we sat and interviewed of waking up from an overdose in the front seat of her car only to find next to her, her dead boyfriend who had also overdosed. And in the back, she could hear her daughter screaming, she's two years old, as the cops are opening the door and ripping their daughter away from her. In the halfway house she was sent to, she gave her life to Jesus after a year. And while working at, that, at our plant, she came to, be, come to, fo- the, uh, to follow these biblical plans that we had laid out for our employees. We hired people like that. We were a second chance employer. In fact, we liked having people like that in our, in our plants. So she came to our plant, gave her life to Christ, and started working through all of the things we did, which we did every, every week, prayer, Bible study, and working with people one-on-one. She embraced our core values. We had five core values that were all biblically based and posted around Bible verses accompanied with them, and she embraced those. She believed those. She joined a church and became part of a community of believers. She deeply embraced all of that and followed God's rules and his structures, and she even followed our safety procedures. Over her first three years, she was promoted four times. She became the office manager and scheduled production for our entire plant. She got married, she bought a home, and she bought a car. But the most touching moment came when she came to my office in the middle of all of that, sat down at my desk, and she started crying. And she said, you're never going to believe what happened. I was in court yesterday, and they reunited me with my daughter. And they restored me to full custody. I've never seen such joy in somebody's eyes who had followed Jesus obediently and faithfully and knew he had, he had restored her life. And she told me that time and time again. It was Jesus. I did what he said. I was obedient. Everything he told me to do, I did it. And he saved me. He rescued me. He redeemed me. He made me prosperous. And he restored my relationship with my daughter. Men, I'm hoping right now you are feeling an incredibly strong desire to stop ignoring God's safety manual. He gave you his word because it's your life. And I'm hoping right now you're feeling compelled to spend the next eight weeks reading, studying, applying God's word to your life every single day. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. I pray these guys will want to take eight weeks now, eight weeks, and go all in to study your word every single day and open their heart up to you. You are their life. We depend on you. We need your truth, Lord. Help them believe that. Help them, Lord, please. Help me stay diligent. Help me do the same as well, Lord, and help us enjoy this journey through Genesis with you, Lord. Help us treat each other well respect each other and love each other, but help us study. And if we disagree, help us have fun doing it, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.